0: I'm reading Luke uh, 21, 5-38, and you can actually sit down because it's really long, and you'll be standing for a while. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, for as these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher. When will these things be, and what will the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and this, uh, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nations will rise against nations, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle in, therefore, with your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will put, uh, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against the people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. For that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came uh, came to him in the temple to hear him.
1: Let's begin with another word of prayer. Jesus, unless you our eyes, we will not see. Unless you change our hearts, we will not love as we ought to. And so we ask by your spirit you will do so. And do it for your glory's sake. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin by nerding out a little bit about 90s Christian subculture. So if you're not familiar with 90s Christian subculture, I'm very sorry. Um, I don't have much for you in my introduction. But anyways, in the 90s, there was a book series, I think it was the 90s, came out, Left Behind, by, uh, by two authors, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. And I remember, uh, I read, I think the I, I think there's like six books in the series, you know, but I think I read the first two. And the, the, the premise of this series, um, it's, uh, it's written by, uh, I mean, it's like Christianity at its nerdiest level, right? But it's kind of an imaginative telling of, of the end times that we see in the scriptures. And so uh, the, uh, the rapture has happened. The rapture is a, a teaching not all Christians believe, but uh, that at the end of the time, God will call his people first, and then there'll be a time with just non-Christians left on the planet Anyways, and so the raptures happened, and the main protagonists of the story wake up, and they haven't been raptured, and that's somewhat of a wake-up call that hey, you thought you were a Christian, but you're not a Christian because you weren't raptured, and it's them kind of navigating the end times, and again, uh, in my like 10-year-old self, I enjoyed it. I don't actually know if it's good literature or not, but it's funny because uh, at the time it was, it was actually massively popular. Like I'm talking about. A Christian subculture, but I think it was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I mean, it sold millions of copies. It did really well. And as with most things in evangelicalism, it started this whole um, uh, what's it called? Create a whole franchise with movies and book spin-offs. There's even a video game series for "Left Behind." Not kidding. It's like three in a series. So if you're into video games, you should check that out. But times have changed. I think if Left Behind came out today, it probably wouldn't sell as well as it did in the 90s. Because in the 90s, there was a time where where Christians were just, you know, had passionate convictions about the end times, and people had these Complex, like diagrams where they're trying to, you know, uh, connect like things you're reading in Revelation to current events and, and people would like, like churches would split over like little disagreements on like, was it pre-post, mid-trib rapture, am I pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, and all these things and that's just not, you just don't see that as much in churches. So I took a exegesis class in Revelation when I was in seminary which is like, you'd think that'd be a very contentious class and surprisingly, it was actually very level-headed, very calm, no one questioning someone's salvation over their interpretation of the millennium. Things have just, times have just changed. I think it's been a healthy correction. Again, it's silly to split a church over these really minutiae uh, teachings, but we don't want to overcorrect and get to the point where we're like almost embarrassed to talk about the end times. Because Jesus gives an entire teaching about what will come and how the world will end but his greatest concern, again, was not trying to like, create these diagrams and these charts and understand every detail of it. His main concern, as we looked at the end of the world, was that his disciples would remain awake, that they would do so by praying and waiting and watching for his return. So the outline for us this morning, first point, these are uh, signs that are not signs. Second point, the sign of Jerusalem's fall. The third point, sign of the beginning of the end. And fourth point application. Now, as you noticed when Joanna was reading that, it's a long text, so we're going to go fast. It's going to be a lot of content. I'm not going to be able to touch every detail, but hopefully, we'll be able to take what's prominent in it, um, and that'll speak to our hearts. So, some context before we jump in. Again, Jesus has finished up his argumentation with the religious leaders. Uh, he is now leaving the temple, and uh, in other gospel narratives, it tells us that this story happens. He, he's leaving the temple, and then he goes out onto uh, the Mount of Olives, which is where he would spend the night during Passion Week. And so that's why this is sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, because he gives this teaching while he's on the Mount of Olives. But as they're leaving the temple, his disciples are looking around and, and, and see the temple, and they can't help but saying, This is an impressive edifice. And that gives the kind of occasion for this teaching. Now, When we first read this, and they're talking about, oh, Jesus, what noble stones. You may think that's an interesting compliment for a building. But uh, there's a reason why they're impressed with the stones. So Herod the Great was a Jewish king. Again, Israel was a Roman province, but they had a semi-autonomous king. And he began an 80-year renovation of the temple. And uh, he expanded the temple quite a bit, and so he had to replace the foundation, make it bigger. And what he used was solid white marble stones that were enormous. Some of them are still there. You can see them if you do excavations in Jerusalem. But for instance, we know some of them were as big as 67 feet long. So if you think from here to the back of the sanctuary, maybe further, uh, 12 feet tall, 18 feet deep, one piece of stone. Before the day of mechanized equipment and hydraulics, even moving that is, is a miracle. And so there's a reason why they're walking out. They're going, look at the size of these stones. This is impressive, But again, this gives the occasion for Jesus' teaching here. Now again, before we jump in, one quick note. This is somewhat of a confusing teaching, just to be honest. And one of the reasons it's confusing is that Jesus is talking about two different events. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a historical reality. It happened in 70 AD. But then he's also talking about the end of the world, and it's not always clear which one he's talking about. And in fact, they're related events because Jesus will treat the destruction of Jerusalem as like a foreshadowing of what the end of the world will be like. And so there's a blurring and that's why it can get a little bit confusing. At times it's not clear, okay, which event is Jesus talking about. That's just a quick note. But here, let's go ahead and jump in. So our first sign, or sorry, our first point is signs that are not signs. Let's look at verse, fifth, uh, sorry, verses five to seven here. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when they'll not be left here one stone upon another, they'll not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are taking place? So again, the disciples are impressed with these stones, and Jesus says, you know what, there's going to come a day when this place will be destroyed completely. And of course, you think of how important the temple was. It'd be like someone saying, hey, you see that White House in Washington, D.C.? There's going to come a day when it will be burned to the ground. If you're an American citizen, you want to know, when's that going to happen? That's a big event. So the disciples say, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that these are about to happen? And so Jesus, his teachings, he's answering that question. But again, the disciples, again, in a Jewish worldview, the destruction of the temple is the end of the world. There is no more cataclysmic event than the temple being destroyed because that's God's house. That's where he dwells. So Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple, but, there's also, but that's not the end of the world. Although in some ways it foreshadows the end of the world. So anyway, so Jesus is going to explain what is a sign of these things. And the first point actually is he's going to give some events that are not signs. <laughs> it's like these are events that will happen and these are not signs though that the end is about to come. And this is verse 8 to 11. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There's going to be Worldwide wars, there's gonna be tumults, there's gonna be earthquakes, great natural events, even signs in the heavens, whether that's a meteor or a shooting star. You're gonna see things like this happen, but that's not a sign that the end is about to come. It's not a sign that Armageddon is coming next. Don't be deceived. And in fact, again, this applies to both the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens in 70 AD, but it also applies to the end of the world. Because again, in verse nine, he's like, these things are gonna happen but the end will not be at once. The end is not coming immediately next. And so in the destruction of Jerusalem, in the years leading up, in, uh, probably those five years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, r- the Roman Empire was, had all kinds of civil unrest. There was a year where there were four different Roman Empire, emperors in one year. There was uh, military battles being fought. Of course, there were probably all kinds of famines and, and, and stuff like that that we don't have historical record of. But these are going to happen, again, before the temple is destroyed. That's not a sign that it's about to happen. Likewise, in the 2,000 years since then, we've seen great wars and great natural phenomena and all sorts of things happen. Don't be deceived. That doesn't mean the end is about to happen. And the reason this is important is if we start making predictions like, oh, you know, some world event happened, this means that Jesus is coming back, and then he doesn't, it's incredibly disillusioning. Right? So, of course, Pat Robertson came out a couple days ago announcing that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is the beginning of Armageddon. But what Jesus is saying is, look, there's going to be great wars. It might be the beginning of the end, but that's not the sign that it is certainly coming. So let's not make predictions that, you know, again, these, these certain predictions that we don't know. Don't be deceived. These are signs that are not signs. It's just part and parcel of living in a world that's Torn by sin and rebellion against God, we have more signs that are not signs. Verses twelve to eighteen. After these kind of like national event or these uh, global events, but then verse twelve. But before all this, even before these signs that are not signs, they will lay their hands on you and they will persecute you, and they deliver you up to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. And this will be your opportunity to bear witness. necessarily a sign of the end, is that there'll be great persecution against Christians. And this isn't just social hostility, some will die. And of course, again, Jesus is, part of this prediction is, is, is leading up to the destruction of the temple, and we see this fulfilled in the lives of the apostles themselves in Acts. When Peter and Paul and James are put in prison, some of them are flogged or beaten publicly, some of them are, are killed even. This is fulfilled in the lives of his disciples, in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And of course, again, this is also speaking about the life of the church. There's going to be seasons of persecution. There's been seasons in the past. There'll be seasons in the future. That's not necessarily evidence that the end is about to come. So if in America, in 30 years, America ceases to be a place that values religious liberty, that doesn't mean the end is about to come. It might be. But this is a sign that is not necessarily a sign that the end is coming. Instead, what persecution is, is an opportunity. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. What Jesus is getting at is <clears throat> a Christian, when, when a Christian witnesses and says, hey, I believe, in, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe he's the light of the world, I believe he is the redemption of, of humanity. Like, and we're all living comfortable lives, it's like, well, that's interesting but it's not particularly compelling. Like, you're a nice person, but so is everybody when life is easy. But when Christians are persecuted, when they're dragged, you know, to prison unjustly, when their possessions are taken from them, when they're beaten because of their confession in Christ and they still choose to preach the gospel, at that point they are preaching the gospel with a megaphone. It's a lot more compelling. When Christians experience hostility for being Christians, <clears throat> and let's just be clear, not for being jerks, right? Sometimes Christians experience hostility for being jerks, but actually hostility for being Christians, it's an opportunity. I wonder if we view social hostility that way. The, you know, the, I mean, we believe things that are somewhat repugnant to people, and we're awkward about that, or do we view it as an opportunity? Yeah, sure, some will slander you for, what, for following Christ. It's an opportunity to bear witness an opportunity that God himself has brought. And so again, here are, these are signs that are not signs. I don't want to belabor them too much. But at the end, he also gives a little promise here. You know, as Christians, we're going to live in times where we'll see great wars, we'll see famines, we'll see global events. We even experience persecution in, in seasons. But in verse 18, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean you'll never die for being a Christian, because he just prophesied that some of you will die. But it's in the sense of when Jesus says in John 3, 16, you know, for God's love of the world, he sent his only son, whoever believes in him shall not perish. And so we who follow Jesus, even when life gets hard, even when that costs us deeply, God will never forsake his own. That's the promise. He'll be with you no matter what valley he may lead you through in your discipleship and your following of Christ. Not a hair of your head will perish. He will keep you steadfast to the end. That's the promise. So that's the first point. These are signs that are not signs. When you see these things happen, when we see a nation like Russia invade Ukraine, we should be concerned, but that's not necessarily a sign of the end. It may be. It may not be. And similarly, he said, when you see these things, it may be a sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. It may not be. but the second point is the sign of Jerusalem's fall. Okay, these are signs that are not signs. What is the sign that Jerusalem is about to fall? Here we get in verses 20 to 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be left captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled." So he says, what's the sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, that the temple will be annihilated like Jesus has prophesied? says, so when you see Jerusalem surrounded, when it's besieged by armies, that's the certain sign. It's not the great wars that you'll see, it's not political turmoil, it's not personal persecution, it's, it's when you see Jerusalem surrounded, that's a sign that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. <clears throat> and when you see this sign, run. Because it's going to be an awful event. Again, he describes it as a time of distress. Alas, for women who are pregnant, they will fall by the edge of the sword, they will be led captive. It will be a time of, 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 I mean, honestly, slaughter, of refugees fleeing the the, the city, of of destruction of, of the city of Jerusalem. And historically, that bore out. Estimated as many as a million Jews died in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman legions. So when you see this sign, run, in fact, Jesus in Matthew says, pray this doesn't happen during winter because the humanitarian crisis will be even worse. I'm sure you've been following the invasion of Ukraine to some extent. The estimates now are over 600,000 uh, Ukrainians have fled the country, and, and they think that if Russia invades all of Ukraine, that could, uh, that could eventually be as many as 4 million Ukrainians leaving the country. Uh, they're saying they haven't seen this many um, refugees fleeing across Europe since World War II. And so it's a humanitarian crisis, and if you look at you know, any news outlet, they just have pictures of people fleeing the country, cramming into trains, you know, uh, elderly and, and women and children and carrying the clothes they have on their backs and the looks of just desperation and honestly shell shock, like that this could happen. That's what Jesus is depicting in the fall of Jerusalem. He says that's what it's going to be like. And the reason, in verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. It's it's God's judgment on his own people. God had sent his son to his people and they had not just rejected him, they had crucified him. And so now are the days of judgment and it'll be awful. But again, Jerusalem falling would have felt like the end of the world for a Jew, but it wasn't. But what it was is a foreshadowing of what the end will be like in the same way the destruction of Jerusalem was terrible and awful, terrifying because it was God's judgment. So the end of the world, in the same way, will be awful and terrifying because it'll be God's judgment. Again, when we see Ukraine being invaded, that isn't necessarily a sign of the end of the world, but it should be a foreshadowing to us and ought to make us tremble and to pray for our neighbors who don't know Christ. God's judgment will be terrible. Now a quick explanatory note before I move on. In verse twenty four, he talks about the times of the Gentiles, and it's like what is Jerusalem be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And likely what he's referring to is is how he says it in Matthew twenty four, fourteen, where he says this gospel of the kingdom would be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And then the end will come. The times of the Gentiles is the time of the mission. So, that we, who, as far as I know, are all Gentiles in this room, worshiping two thousand, you know, thousands of miles away from where Christianity was born, can know Christ. This is a time when Gentiles will become Christian. It's the mission to the Gentiles. But, anyways, just an explanatory note on that one. So, again, the first point the signs that are not signs, the second point, the sign of Jerusalem's destruction and the third point the sign of the beginning of the end and again this is it's confusing how Jesus does this but Jerusalem is a foreshadowing of what the end will actually be like and here he describes the end in verses 25 to 33 and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So Jesus has told us look, when you see again global events, wars, famines, persecution, this is not necessarily a sign that the end is about to come. What is the one true sign? It's when we see Jesus come back. It says he'll be descending uh, on a cloud. We don't know if that's metaphorical language, but the point is that Christ will come back and everyone will know that he's back. Again, Matthew uses the language, it'll be like lightning that lights up the sky. Like no one, when they're looking out, says, oh, I saw a lightning bolt, no one else saw it. No, no, when lightning happens, everyone sees it. And when Christ comes back, we don't know how this will be the case, but everyone will know. So don't be deceived. If someone comes and says, hey, Jesus came back, he's in my basement. No. If Jesus comes back, like, everyone will know. And over 2,000 years, there have been many messiahs, quote-unquote messiahs, who have come. There's been world religions started out of messianic claims to be the Messiah. It's not true. When Christ comes back, everyone will know. And that's not the end. It's the beginning of the end. Because when Christ comes back, the people who have already rejected Christ, the nations of the world, will will basically wage war on Christ and the hosts of heaven. That is what the Bible calls Armageddon. Again, we don't know how much of this is metaphor, but there will be a great final battle and then that finally will be the end. But when you see Christ returning, that's the beginning of the end. That's the one certain sign. And again, it's gonna be traumatic and terrible, just like Jerusalem's fall was, just like the images coming out of Ukraine are, because it'll be part of God's judgment. Now, he, he finishes with this parable of a fig tree. And again, like, I have a bit of an allergy To to the to the Christians who are like, oh, this is the end of the world, and I know based on this world event, I'm tying to this biblical prophecy, and because Jesus just tells us, don't be deceived. These aren't signs. The one sign is when you see Jesus. I have a bit of an allergy to that, but we don't want to overcorrect, because Jesus still tells us, keep your eyes open, because it's okay. It does seem like things will probably get worse right before Christ comes back. There will be great distress in the world. We don't know if it'll be unprecedented turmoil or difficulty. But it will get bad, and Jesus says, keep your eyes open. Don't let, it come, uh, don't let it catch you unaware or asleep. Again, we don't want to make certain predictions, but we can know for sure that Christ will come back. And the question is, will we be ready? Again, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. My words won't pass away. He is coming, so we'll we be ready when he comes. Now again, I have another explanatory note. I'm sorry, this is a really technical sermon. I'm apologizing up front. But there's just so much in here and we're trying to get through it. But there's one explanatory note. He says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until everything has taken place. And from first glance, it could look like Jesus is saying everything's gonna happen in the next 50 years. Which if that had been what Jesus was saying, he would've been wrong. And of course, that would call into the question, is Jesus divine, is he God? Is all of Christianity a sham? Now if that were true, which means the disciples made up most of what we have, it wouldn't make sense for them to include what was obviously a false prediction. And so I don't think that's the case beyond the fact that I do believe Jesus is God, but even even just from a logical perspective, I don't think that's, it would make no sense why that would be in here. And so likely what it means when Jesus says this generation will not pass away is probably meaning one of two things. He's using this generation to refer to unbelieving Israel because at various points in the Gospel of John, Jesus will talk about this unbelieving generation or this generation. And so it may be a reference that Israel will reject Christ as Messiah until the very end. Or it could mean when it says this generation is referring to the generation that will be alive when the end comes. And he's saying one, like the, the generation that sees Christ come in the clouds, they will see the end. It won't be a protracted event by that point. This generation will experience it. So that's just an explanatory note. But again, That brings us to the end of our third point, the sign of the beginning of the end. And then here finally we get to our fourth point, which is application. Let me read it for us, verses 34 to 38. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. I, um, I really struggled with this last point. And I actually uh, I wrote it three times in and. and you know, wrote it through, scrapped everything, started over again. And I you don't, I mean, the way I usually write a sermon is I write it and then I edit it extensively. I almost never just scrap it. But I just, I would write it out. i like, that's not it. Scrap it, write it out. And the reason I struggled is because I just, I feel a burden for our church, for this passage. And I just, I, I didn't know how, I didn't want to come across wrong. And so I think, I think what I have is what the Spirit wants us to hear and I hope that it is helpful to us as a church. In this, Jesus has given us a foreshadowing or a foretelling of what's gonna come, the end of the world. And there's gonna be a long wait, 2,000 years and counting. And so this is what he wants the church to know as they're waiting. And he includes a warning and then a command and then a reason for that command. And first, the warning, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Dissipation, probably not a word we use a whole lot. The idea is overindulgence. Usually refers to alcohol, um, but just like the word binging can refer to alcohol, but can refer to food, and now can refer to Netflix, can refer to all kinds of things. The idea is an overindulgence in the good things of life or the pleasurable things of life. Dissipation, drunkenness, that's pretty self-explanatory. And the cares of this life, just life, work parenting, groceries, saving for the future, all the obligations, the things that you, you have to care about if you're going to live. Now, what's interesting is in these, in these three things he wants us to be careful about, two of them are obviously sins, right? So dissipation, overindulgence has within it this inherent idea that it's too much, drunkenness, obviously a sin. But the cares of this life, like, that's just life. Akuna matata is not a biblical principle, okay? We have cares, what is Jesus getting at here? And his, his emphasis is not on which ones are inherently sinful or not. His emphasis is on this. It's on the weighing down of our hearts that can happen through these things. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. And the sense there is being tired. I think these things tire you, spiritually speaking. They dull your alertness, spiritually speaking. They keep you from being able to do spiritually what we're called to do. Think of it like this. If you're running a marathon, which I know all of you are thinking, man, I bet he runs a lot of marathons. I've never actually run a marathon in my life. I know, it's surprising. I look like a marathon runner. My wife's run a couple, and so we're one flesh, so I claim, I claim that uh, as, uh, as, as mine. But um, if you're running, but I've researched this. If you're running a marathon, I mean, you'll spend like six months, right, training but then the, the three weeks before the race, you begin to do what's called tapering, which means you, you're lessening the number of miles because by then, you've, you've maxed out your, your stamina, you're not getting any faster, but you're trying to make sure that your legs are fresh for the day of the run. So you start tapering, and you, you're lowering the mileage of weekly runs, and then you get to the week before, and you're really not running more than like three or four miles. Then the like two or three days before, like you're not running more than two miles at like an easy jog because you want your legs to be fresh. Like you don't need to build any more strength. You, you're trying to make sure you're not tired for your run, what you will not do is go hike a mountain the day before your marathon. Right? Or you won't stay up till two in the morning playing video games. Or you won't go out and just get hammered drunk the night before. Because it's going to weaken you for your run. It's going to weaken your ability to run your best. This is what Jesus is getting at. These things tire us. We're we're in a, a, a spiritual marathon, and we need our strength. And these things tire us. They sap us of our strength. They keep us from being able to run the race that we're called to run. But these really call for wisdom and discernment. Because, again, okay, drunkenness, okay, don't get drunk. That's an obvious one. But, like, dissipation, like, when is something overindulgence? I think you could watch a movie and not be overindulging. When does it become something that's dulling our, that's weakening us spiritually? This is, this just calls for wisdom and discernment. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the average American watches three hours of TV a day. That's just TV. If you add like social media and all other screen time, it'd be probably quite a bit of time. I think we could say, hey look, if you're watching three hours of TV a day, that's overindulgence. Maybe disagree with me, let's talk about it. But I would say that's overindulgence. That's too much, that's dissipation. But at what point does it become that? But the question we wanna ask is not when does this become overindulgence, the question we wanna ask is, is this helping me run well? Just like the day before you run a marathon, like you're not like how far can I run before it starts weakening me? It's like no, what will help me run well? What will help us run well the spiritual marathon? That's a much better question to ask when we're thinking about overindulgence. Or we think about the cares of life. Again, we all have cares of life. We're not supposed to quit our jobs and, you know, sit at home with no responsibilities. That's that's not what God calls us to. But at one point, do the cares of life begin to weigh our hearts down so that we can't run this spiritual marathon? Well, I think it's safe to say if you're so busy to participate in the life of the church, like if you don't have a morning and an evening a week to spend with God's people, you're probably too busy. And honestly, unless you're working nine hours a week, you're not too busy, right? That's one extreme, right? And, and there's always exceptions, right? But anyways, that, we could probably say that's too busy, but again, at what point are we, are, are we so focused on the things of this life that they're weighing our hearts down? Well again, question to ask. When is too busy too busy? Are you too busy to run well? That's why it calls for wisdom and discernment. I can't answer that for you. Are you too busy to run the race well? Well, that's the warning. Watch out, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with, with these things that, that tire us out spiritually, that, 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 that um, blur our alertness. But then the command, verse 36, but stay awake. At all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, Stay awake, be spiritually alert, be sharp, don't fall asleep. How? By praying. That's how we stay awake. We pray. I mean, obviously, the first one is like, don't be weighed down by all these other things, by dissipation and drunkenness and cares of life, right? It's like, if you don't want to fall asleep, don't take sleeping pills. But then how do you stay awake? It was by prayer. This is amazing. This is the Lord of life. What's the one thing you need? Prayer. If you talk to a seminary professor, he'll tell you you need more theological training and more degrees. If you talk to a Christian psychologist, he'll tell you you need better rhythms of life, you need more emotional awareness. If you talk to a, an associ, association worker of, of the like the Louisville Regional Baptist Association, it's like, what do churches need? He'd say, we need more strategies of outreach. Jesus says, what do we need more of? We need more prayer. That's how we stay awake. And the beautiful thing, it's like, oh, how do I apply that? i got a way for you to apply it. Prayer meeting tonight, 5 p.m. It's like God knew what he was doing in having this text for tonight. We also have our, our Lenten prayer schedule where you can, you can sign up for an hour of prayer. By the way, just so this is clear, I am not in the sanctuary during that time. Like if you're not signing up, it's like that would be super awkward to sit in the sanctuary with Mike for an hour. I will be down in my office making sure no one's robbing us, but the sanctuary is empty for you. And we still have slots left. You know. Unless you work Saturday morning, why not? Sign up for a prayer slot. The one thing we need is prayer. But there's a reason we need more prayer, and it's because of what's ahead. And this is the last part of this fourth point. The reason for the command, which again is in verse 36. Where it says the command, stay awake and pray. Why? So that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He's not saying pray so that you might escape suffering. Jesus promised, you follow me, there's gonna be suffering that comes with that. It's that we might escape the temptation, that we might stand, that we might stay awake, so when Christ comes back, we might be standing to greet him. There's a, I th- I think this has gotta be intentional, but this is very similar to what's gonna happen just a chapter later when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he has his disciples, and it's late at night, and he says, stay awake with me and pray. Watch with me and pray. And they fall asleep. And you gotta think, if they had known that night their Lord was going to be betrayed and the next morning crucified, they would have been able to stay awake and pray. And so what Jesus is saying is, stay awake and pray because of what is coming, because there will be trials None of us know what this year is going to bring. If life is is pleasant now and and it's at a good pace, praise God and use it to pray and strengthen yourself so when the trials come, you might stand. When the temptations come, you might not fall. Jesus says pray because what's coming ahead, there will be trials and temptations. So watch and pray. Stay awake and pray. Vine Street, Jesus Jesus is coming back. Again, there's so much about the end times that we don't understand, but we know this, that he's coming back. And before he comes back, there'll be hardships and there'll be trials, but we know that our Lord will walk with us through any of them. He is our shepherd who goes before us. So watch and pray. Stay alert. Commit yourself to praying because we're running a spiritual marathon. And we need our strength to run it well. And we want to be ready when Jesus comes back. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we will be awake. Lord, rouse us from our slumbers. Help us to see the realities that you proclaimed of your kingdom that is here among us of the advancement of your kingdom, of, of the defeat of the powers of darkness, that God became a man and dwelt among us that we might have life, true life. God, mate, we, we, just, we confess, we forget, and our hearts grow dull. So wake us, that we might know true joy. We ask this, In the name of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.